Hey friends, we're so glad that you've joined us here today. My name's Kevin and I'm one of the pastors here at Friends Church in Orange. And whether you're watching this message online or listening to it in your car or on a run or wherever you are today, it's our hope that the words that are shared, that the message of God that is shared in this message will give you hope, life, and encouragement as you seek to live faithfully for Jesus in the midst of your world. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so by going to our website. We'd love to meet you, we'd love to connect with you, and we'd love to serve you in any way we can. Good morning, Friends Church. It's great to be here with you. I've had the privilege of coming a couple of times over the last few years, and I just love getting to be here with you all. And I I want you to know, um, I work with our denomination, and you have an amazing staff. These people love you, and they love serving God. So if you haven't thanked them recently, you might want to, because they're really a great group of people. Amen. That's right. Okay. So once upon a time, there were two well-dressed men who set out on a journey. These two men were the same race, the same religion, the same socioeconomic status, and they were both well-known in their communities. And they were both headed for the same destination, the state of approval. The first man was a decent man. A church man, a charitable contributor, a faithful husband, a moral example, and a man of discipline. The other man was pretty much like a mayor of a small provincial town in France during World War II who was secretly collaborating with the Nazis and getting rich while his neighbors were suffering. That's man number two. As they traveled, they came to a fork in the road, To the right was a road with a shiny street sign named Santa Claus Lane. And to the left was a road with a wooden sign nailed to a post that said the Freedom Trail. Not sure which way to go initially, the first man reached into his pocket, retrieved a list, checked it twice, and with confidence and triumph on his face, proceeded down Santa Claus Lane, humming to himself, he knows if you've been bad or good, so that's right. The second man reached into his pockets and found nothing. They were interminably empty. And so he bowed his head with sorrow on his face, silently walked down the humble-looking road to the Freedom Trail. One of these men arrived at their destination. The other did not. You've been in a series in the parables, and the parables, if you've been here, you'll understand are stories Jesus uses to teach us about the kingdom of God. And this parable that we'll look at today is pretty easily accessible on a lot of levels, but it holds a truth that is essential to our understanding of Jesus and the kingdom of God. And so if we miss it, we've missed like the whole kit and caboodle. And so it's a really important parable. And the purpose of this parable today that Jesus tells is to answer this question, how does one find approval with God. Would you pray with me? And I want you to put one hand up and one hand toward your neighbor. 
And with this hand, we're going to pray that we'd be open to receiving what God has for us today. And with this hand, we're going to pray that our neighbor would receive what they need today. So God, thank you that you're here with us, that we can trust your presence. And with our open hand lifted toward heaven, God, we say, I want to be open. I want to receive what you have for me today. And with our hand directed toward our neighbor, we say, Lord, would you meet their needs? Would you reach into their heart and help them be receptive to what you have to say to them today? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so um, our parable today is called The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. And as always, whenever we're studying, you know, Jesus and what he said, we have to understand the cultural context. We have to know how the people listening to Jesus when he said it would have understood the characters and the elements in the story. So the Pharisee would have been understood as a good man, as one of their primary religious leaders, as someone they went to for wisdom. The tax collector would have been understood as a traitor because he was collaborating with the Romans to take taxes, even though he was a Jewish man, to take taxes from the Jewish people, but to take extra and line his own pockets. And so he was considered a traitor, just rather despicable. And that's how they would have heard it when Jesus sets up this parable. So on the surface, there seems to be no tension, right? I mean, this is simple like good versus bad. But let's jump into the story and see what we see. It's Luke 18, verses 9 to 14, and I'm going to read it for you. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But instead, he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As I said, this parable is about finding God's approval. And the need for approval is a universal one, and it spans across generations and cultures. We have societal ways that we put pressure on one another for approval. If you were a man in ancient Rome, it would have a lot to do with how many battles you fought, how many victories you gained. That would be your source of approval. If you grew up in an Asian culture, you might also have felt like you, as long as you didn't do anything to dishonor your family, like even lose your job, then you were approved of. Here in the West, we have lots of ways that we work for approval. Beauty, success, fame. Fame even meaning how many likes I get on my Instagram, right? <clears throat> Those are ways that we are all working for approval, because finding approval and acceptance, having a sense of being valued as a person, that's not a weakness. That's a need in our souls. We all have this need, whether we recognize it or not. Now, in case you're sitting there thinking, yeah, 
Not me. I don't, I don't give a flying leap what anybody thinks about me. I'm just going to, you know, ever so gently say, the only people who actually don't care about what other people think are psychopaths. So you can just take that and <coughs> chew on it for a little bit. <coughs> See, the problem is we just don't recognize. We don't recognize that underneath much of our endeavors, underneath much of the relationship decisions that we make, is this need for approval, to be valued. And we direct that need to things other and people other than God himself until it remains insatiable. It just continues to drive us. You ever wonder why you do the same thing over and over, even when it doesn't work? Well, you should ask yourself about your approval needs, right? Because God's the only one who can address this. And Jesus, right away, is addressing this need in the parable. He's addressing the need for approval, but he's directing it to those who trusted in themselves to gain it, to those who trusted in their own efforts to be able to garner God's approval. I want you to look with me at uh, the Pharisee, the way Jesus describes him. If you are looking at the scripture behind me or in your Bibles, when it says that the Pharisee was standing alone, what it means is he took his stand. You know, think Antonio Brown walking onto the field, right? Other man. That's what he did. He walked into the temple and took his stand. And then the, the scripture also infers that he walked past all the common people, looking down on them who were not allowed to get as close to the altar, and he stood right in front of them, as close to the altar as he could get. He took his stand. And then the Pharisee begins to pray. And in the 33 words he uses, hardly any of it is about God. One commentator says he glances at God, but focuses on himself. Because see, his is an outside-in theology of morality. I'm good, therefore I should be approved of. And so he prays a prayer of comparison, not a prayer of thanksgiving, not a prayer of confession, not a prayer of asking something for someone else. He prays a prayer of comparison that first says what he is not, and then says why he is better than. I thank you that I am not like other people. I'm not a robber, a cheat, or an adulterer. Now, Jesus using this prayer in his parable might seem like hyperbolic, like he's using exaggeration to make his point. But this type of prayer was really common in the Pharisaic tradition. The, the actual prayer that's documented by many historians, it was a common prayer by the Pharisees, went like this. Oh God, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, which would be a non-Jewish person. I thank you that I am not a common Roman citizen or dog. I thank you that I am not a woman. To which I want to say, oh God, I thank you that I am not a Pharisee. <laughs> Did you catch it? All right. So when Jesus tells this story... <clears throat> this prayer would not have seemed out of bounds to anyone. It wouldn't have seemed exaggerated to his listeners because they'd heard similar prayers like this quite often. But it does, to my curious mind, beg the question, then why didn't Jesus just use the common prayer that was said all the time? Why write a different prayer just in similar fashion? I think the answer lies in the next verse. 
Look at verse 12. The Pharisee goes on to say, besides not being these terrible things that all these other people are, I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. Now, in the original language, it's not all that I get. It's all that I possess. So all that I have. So here's why that matters. Tithing was only required once a year. I mean, tithing was only required on what your wage was, not on everything you own. And fasting was only required once a year. I think Jesus is illustrating by writing a different prayer rather than using the actual one, that if we subscribe to a theology of morality that is based on my own efforts to garner God's approval, we will always have to demand more and more and more of ourselves and of others. The Pharisee's choice to fast two times a week and tithe on everything he owns now becomes the standard by which he approves of himself and judges others. His choice to becomes everybody else's have to. We do this too. Don't be fooled. We do this with our politics. How could you possibly call yourself a Christian if you're not a Republican? How could you possibly be a lover of Jesus if you're not a Democrat? Right? We do this in the church too. Look at those people. They're just standing with their hands in their pockets during worship. Do they not even love God? Look at those people. They're raising their hands, dancing. They're just emotional. Has nothing to do with God. We elevate our preference to the level of imperative. And our choice to becomes someone else's have to. See, that's the spirit of the Pharisee that Jesus is trying to get us to see lives in all of us. It's not confined to that role. We have to reckon with the fact that we all have a bent in our nature to elevate ourselves and to be self-sufficient in order to gain approval. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do. We don't want to be dependent. We don't want to feel indebted to anyone. We don't want to admit weakness or feel need. And we want to be good enough on our own merit. Now, I want you to see this this desire to be in control goes way back to the very beginning of humankind. Do you remember the story of the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the serpent comes to tempt them. And what is the temptation he offers them? When they say to him, this is what God says, he says, that's not true. You certainly will not die. God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Do you hear it? You can be your own God and determine the standard of good and bad. This has been our struggle from the very beginning. We want to have control. We want to have control over whether or not we're approved of. And we like having a list and checking it twice. Theology of morality gives us a false sense of control over God's approval. But that's what religion always does. Religion is always a human means to reach God, to gain his approval. Whether it's traditional Judaism or traditional Protestantism that has a list of rules, or Islam that has a list of deeds, or Buddhism that you have to reach enlightenment, or Hindus that you have to have certain knowledge and levels of devotion. They're all human ways to try to reach to God, to try to gain his approval. But faith in my ability 
to reach God and achieve enough to gain his approval, my friends, it caves in on itself every single time. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. First, if we subscribe to faith in our own goodness, then the bar will forever be changing. The Pharisee had to keep adding good works to the list. We would too. And then he had to compare himself to someone else who was wor worse than him in order for this to work. So we have to keep adding things to our list and finding someone who's worse than us in order for me to be able to work for God's approval on my own merit. Those two things have to be true. And if the standard for goodness keeps changing and is dependent on me finding someone worse than me, how is that just? You see, a lot of people reject God because they say, well, I'm good enough. I'm a good person. I should be able to go to heaven. I should, I should be counted good enough on my own. But how can you know what is, is good enough? If there's no system by which it says, this is how you gain God's approval, then the bar is always moving. The target's always changing. And there's nothing about that that is good or just. And it's why some people have abandoned their faith because they think God is capricious and unpredictable. And then lastly, if God's approval is dependent on my goodness, then what happens if I die at the same moment as Holiday Zimmerman, the most pure-hearted person I know who's making a difference in the world? I'm toast! That's what happens. Right? I'm toast! You see, a theology of goodness on my own merit it's just going to cave in on itself. And let me ask you, does it sound appealing to you? Is it something you want to invite someone into? Does it sound life-giving, full of freedom? It doesn't to me. It sounds awful. And I know it to be awful because I lived like that for a long time. I was saved. I knew the verse that Angel read, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For grace, by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. I knew that verse. But then I worked very, very hard to secure God's love for me because I was good. And the thing is, I was really good at being really good. And it was just sucking the life out of me. My kids bear the remnants of some of that. But then Jesus did this radical work of grace in my life, walking me down the freedom trail on a new path. And that brings us to the tax collector, protagonist number two. <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, in case you didn't catch it the first time, spoiler alert, tax collector is the one who ends up being made right with God. Here's his prayer. Seven words. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. His posture was that of inside out. He looked inward and found how empty and impoverished he was in the presence of God. So much so he wouldn't even raise his gaze to heaven. He made no case for himself. He did not compare himself to anyone else. And he confessed that his pockets were entirely empty, had nothing. 
no leg to stand on, nothing to offer. And he felt it so deeply that he beat his chest as if to say, I am so empty and in so much need of mercy. Now understand, these two characters represent groups of people, two paths to try to achieve God's righteousness, and Jesus loves both of them. Jesus would want to save both of them because both of them were lost, and both of them were in needs of God's approval. But only one of them found it. So what made the difference? The Pharisee wasn't a hypocrite. He really did do all the things he said he did, and he really didn't do all the things he said he didn't. Now, don't lose the importance of what Jesus is saying here. One man was saved and found God's approval. That's what justified means. And the other was not. That's a pretty weighty statement. That's not like this person got first place and this person got second place. Right? This is a very weighty statement about their lives, about their status with God, about, about their connection to God, about their eternity. So what made the difference? Why was the tax collector, the bad dude, why was he approved of by God? <clears throat> well, in a word, mercy. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. But it's really uh, important that we understand the specific word here that Jesus chose to use for mercy. It's not the common word that's used in the New Testament for mercy in the Greek or the Hebrew that means compassion, loving pity. This word is halaskamai, and it means to make atonement for. Now, I understand that's a churchy word. What it means is paying the debt of the wrong so that things can be made right again. What it means is to reconcile, to bring back together in a state of goodness and wholeness. Halaskomai, mercy. Halaskomai me, God. I am a sinner. So do you see it? Do you see what the tax collector is saying? He isn't saying, I've done so many bad things, I need your compassion. I've behaved so wrongly, please take pity on me and make me better. He's saying, I'm completely impoverished in your presence. I have nothing. I cannot be good enough. My only hope is if you'll pardon me. My only hope is if you will deliver me. My only hope is if you will reconcile me to yourself. Alaska, my me. Now this word that Jesus used very on purpose is the word that was used to describe the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented the presence of God to the people while they were traveling out of Egypt to the Promised Land, as well as in the temple in Jerusalem. And in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a box, and inside the box was the law, the Ten Commandments. And above the box was a mercy seat. That's what it was called. And that's where the priest, once a year, would offer a sacrifice to atone for, to ask for halaskomai, 
to atone for the sins of the people, represented by, we can't keep the law. This is the word Jesus chooses to use, because what he's saying is, you need more than my compassion, which you have. You need my halaskamai. You need my ability to atone for you. Jesus was setting the stage that he was becoming the ways and the means for mercy, for God's mercy to reconcile us to himself. The mercy seed in the Old Testament was made of gold, but the mercy seed in the New Testament was made of wood and was formed into the shape of a cross because Jesus is the ways and means for us to have halaskomai. Romans 8, 1 through 3 says, For the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. Set you free. For God did what the law could not do. And that's why Jesus says of this man, of the one who trusted fully in mercy, not the outwardly righteous man, that he is the one who went away justified or made right with God because he was utterly dependent on God's mercy. And that's the central theme of the gospel that we have to preach to ourselves every day because otherwise drift happens, right? We just drift back into our workspace theology. We drift back into wanting to be good enough on our own. We just drift back into trying super hard. And we have to remind ourselves it is my utter dependence on the mercy of God that saves me for my eternal salvation, but then continues to save me, right? I, I was already saved as a believer when God did that radical work of grace in my life, but he had to save me from my own works. He has to save me now constantly from my fear, right? It's God's mercy that does that work in our lives. I want to give you a, a story, a real-life story that might illustrate this really well. <clears throat> It was in 2008, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with hepatitis C. He had grown up on the streets of Brooklyn, and he was on his own from the time he was 14. So drugs and a lot of other things were part of his life, and now in his mid-50s, he was diagnosed with hep C, probably from a dirty needle, either from drugs or tattoos, because he did have a tattoo of the Grim Reaper from his shoulder to his elbow. And his leg, his arm was like the size of your leg. This is a big dude. He was 6'5". He was a presence in the room, right? And here he was dying of hepatitis C. It was going really fast. So by November, he was in the hospital. And they said, he's, we really don't expect him to even leave the hospital. And so I would get a call. We, weren't, we were a, a good family. We liked each other, but we weren't super close and so I would get a call and say, Bruce, my brother-in-law, is asking if you could come see him. So I would go down to the hospital and sit with him. And I knew that the reason that he was asking for me to come was because he could sense something of God in me. I was the strongest believer in the family. There was only one other person in the family who had a relationship with Jesus. But honestly, I had just gone through this radical work of grace, and I hadn't kind of worked out my language for it yet. And so I was struggling a bit because I didn't want to default to like there are four laws and these are the steps you have to take and make it really transactional in the way God had just delivered me from. But I hadn't quite figured out 
all of how to share it. So I was struggling a little bit, but wanted to be faithful. And we were having conversations, and I said, Bruce, Jesus loves you. And he said, but Heidi, I've done so many bad things. You have no idea. And I thought to myself, well, the Grim Reaper on your arm is a little bit of a hint. (laughs) And I said, yes, but Jesus' forgiveness is bigger than that. And he said, do you think he'll even remember me? And at that moment, a nurse rushed into the room and said, we've got to do an emergency procedure and I need to leave. So as she's ushering me out, I say, I'll be back tomorrow, Bruce. And I go home and I'm praying and I'm like, Lord, I'm not doing a very good job. I'm trying. Give me the right words. Give me the right words to know how to answer. And as I was driving back to the hospital the next day, I got a phone call. Bruce had gone into a coma and he wasn't expected to come out of it. And I was crushed because I didn't get to finish the conversation. I didn't get to answer his question. Do you think he'd even remember me? So I went to the hospital, and I sat in a chair in his dark room, and the nurse said, you know, we don't expect him to come out. And I said, yeah, i got to be here anyway. And I sat, and I prayed, and I tell you, prior to that moment in my life, I had never experienced this kind of darkness. It was like I was dropped right into the center of a war for his soul. And I felt it. I felt the pull of light and dark in a way I'd never felt before. Like I was literally fighting for his life. And the enemy was just in my head saying, you screwed it up. You missed your opportunity. It's too late now. You you don't really know what you're talking about. You don't really even believe this stuff. It was just clamoring in my head. And I kept trying to claim the truth. And what I did was I just kept praying God's mercy. I need your mercy to cover this situation. I need your mercy to wake Bruce up. I need your mercy to give me the right words. And I was sitting there for like two hours, begging God and fighting the enemy with everything I was worth. When all of a sudden I hear, Heidi. And I was like, Bruce, oh my gosh. And I get right down on his face. And I go, Bruce, you asked me a question yesterday. Are you with me? I want to answer your question. And he nods. And I said, someone else asked Jesus that very question. Will you remember me? Bruce, when Jesus was crucified on the cross next to him, was a murderer and a thief and a robber. And he recognized the sign above Jesus' head that he was the king. He recognized that Jesus was the king. And what he said was, Will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus' answer, Bruce, was, yes, I will. Today you will be with me. Bruce, all you have to do is recognize Jesus as the king and ask him to remember you. And I said, do you want to do that? And he nodded his head. And I said, just pray this prayer the best you can after me. So I prayed, and in his very broken voice, with his very shallow breath, he prayed. And then the nurse came in again and ushered me out. And on my way home, I was just filled with all this insecurity, like, Lord, was that real? Was he just grasping for straws? Like, was that a real, did you save him? I need some confirmation. And um, Bruce came out of the coma that day, and he called and said, would you bring the girls down? I want to say goodbye to them, because he knew he was dying. So I brought my three daughters down. They were young. The youngest was 10. The oldest was 15. And they stood at the foot of his bed. And here's what he says. 
do you know what your mom's been doing all afternoon? They were like, no. He said, well, he's, he's, she's been reintroducing me to someone I haven't talked to for a very long time. Bruce died seven days later. That's how last am I. He didn't have any time to change his life. He was in a hospital bed. But he recognized Jesus as the king and that he had nothing in his pockets to save him. And the only thing that could possibly snatch him out of the enemy's hands would be Halaskumai, the mercy of God. My friends, in this parable, Jesus is saying, there's a kingdom and I'm the king, and my mercy is the way in. You cannot earn your way in, you cannot behave your way in, and you cannot be bad enough to not be allowed in. But you can only come in through my mercy. Yes, there's a life in this kingdom. If you want to be great, you serve. If you want to live, you lose your life. If you're humble, you'll be lifted up. And if you're prideful, you'll be pushed down. That is the way of life in this kingdom. But that is not how you get in. That is the transformation that occurs once you are in. The only way in is by my mercy. Because this is an inside-out kingdom, not an outside-in kingdom. Remember the Pharisee, he had an outside-in theology. I am good, therefore I should be approved of. But the way of the kingdom is, I'm approved of by the king. And therefore, I desire to live right. And this is the invitation of Jesus to all of us. To live in the ongoing mercy, the loving kindness, compassion, pity, and the halaskomai, mercy of God in our lives. I wonder if you would bow your heads as we go to prayer. <clears throat> if you're here today and you've, you feel God tugging at your heart and you've just never been able to cross that line of belief in Jesus, either because it didn't make sense to you that you needed him because you thought you were good enough or because you feel like you were too bad, I want you to know in this moment, this is a perfect moment, for you to ask God to remember you, to recognize Jesus as King. And we would love to pray with you. If you're here today and you're like me, that you know the verses and you've trusted Christ for your eternal salvation, but the, the slavery of goodness and the law keeps pulling you back, this is a perfect day to ask God to free you. Because what he wants for you is freedom and life. So Jesus, in your name and in your name alone, we come before you humbled, God. We come saying our pockets are empty and we need you, Lord. We have no other hope save for your mercy. Lord Jesus, for that person in this room right now who has fallen into slavery with works righteousness, who feels like they constantly have to work for your approval and everyone else's, oh God, bring freedom to them today. Give them a taste of what it's like to live in your halaskomai and your grace, Lord. 
Father, for the person who's never been able to trust you as Savior, would you help them to see how deeply good you are, Lord, and that your goodness could be theirs. Lord, that it's a life of freedom and joy. You are good, Lord. And you're the same God that created the world and created the mercy seat. You're the same God who sent Jesus to save us and the same God who will reign when the fullness of time has come. And Lord, we just say openly and willingly that we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.